invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. Uh, last week, if you were here, if you remember, uh, we looked at the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector. These two men who went to the temple to pray. And we looked at the danger of self-righteousness, of trusting in yourself that you are righteous, that you have enough righteousness of your own to stand before God. And we saw that the only way to truly be justified before God is to come like a child before God, empty-handed, and to simply beat our breast and call out to God for mercy in recognition of our sin. And now as the account moves on into verse 18... We're going to now, and beyond what we're going to look at today, we see um, these, these truths from last week being played out in real life situations. So last week in that parable, Jesus is illustrating truths, and now we see these truths played out in real life with real actual people. And so we'll see that this week, and we'll see that again as we move into the end of chapter 18 and into 19 with the blind beggar and Zacchaeus. And what we have as we come to to verse 18 with this rich ruler is really a real-life embodiment of the Pharisee from the parable of last week, a self-righteous man. And so I'll invite you to read these verses with me, and then we'll dive into them. So starting in, in verse 18 of Luke 18, Luke writes, And a ruler asked him, that's Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. There's a number of things going on in this text, but the the main thing The main thing this passage is addressing is this issue of how does somebody inherit eternal life, right? That's the question that's placed before him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is what the rich ruler asks. Now, just before we jump in, I just want to draw your attention to something off the bat. In in verse 18, the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, But then in verse 24, Jesus is going to call it, Uh, entering the kingdom of God. So Jesus said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples are going to ask the question, who then can be saved? And so you have inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, and being saved. 
And these terms are really being used here interchangeably. So I think this is helpful because sometimes, I don't know if you've run into this, I have, sometimes you run into an article or a conversation with somebody and they'll try to pass off, oh, that whole idea of being saved from your sin, that's one small part of what the Bible's saying. Jesus and the Gospels talk a lot about entering the kingdom. That's a different thing. And then they, they're off trying to talk about something else. But here we see these, these terms really being used interchangeably. So they do bring out certain emphases, you know, you know when it comes to redemption, uh, inheriting the kingdom or inheriting or entering the kingdom or inheriting eternal life, you know, coming under God's rule when we enter the kingdom. Uh, inheriting eternal life, the, the, our inheritance and reward, living forever, uh, being saved from our sin and God's judgment. They have different uh, emphases, but they're all here used interchangeably. The subject is not changing as this event goes. And so this passage then is addressing the question, how do we inherit eternal life? Or we could ask it another way, how does one enter the kingdom? Or yet again, how is somebody saved? That's what's being asked here. And before we really uh, get find an answer here, first we see a couple of ways that we do not enter, a couple of ways we do not inherit eternal life, a couple of places where our hope uh, must not lie, should not lie, cannot lie. And so the first point here of our outline is that our hope of eternal life is not found in the law or in one's own righteousness. Okay, this is really, again, what we looked at last week uh, with the Pharisee. We'll see again that this is one of these people. Last week, if you remember, the, the, Pharise- the, the, uh, the parable was addressed in verse 9 to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So that's what we have, we're going to have with this Pharisee. He thinks that he can do it within himself. He can obtain this righteousness. These verses, uh, 18 to 30, they can be confusing, I think. And, and, and potentially easily misunderstood. Uh, when this question is raised of how somebody inherits eternal life, uh, I think we probably, if you've spent time in church, you believe the gospel, we expect Jesus to say something about faith. We expect him to talk something about uh, believing in him. Uh, as we think of John 3.16, uh, we should believe in him to have everlasting life. Uh, we might expect him to say something of repentance uh, or, or following after him. And he will get to, you know, follow me. But first, he takes us in another direction that is maybe a little bit, a little bit surprising and can cause some to misunderstand. Um, but if we have a few, I think, foundational uh, pieces in our understanding first, then we can make sense of what Jesus is doing here. We can see what he's saying and doing, and we can actually see the brilliance of what he's saying and doing. And, uh, and I think it, it makes perfect sense. So one of those foundational things is the importance of understanding the distinction, the difference between law and gospel. The distinction between law and gospel. So the law would be commands, right? We think of the Ten Commandments. The law of God informs us of what it is that God expects of people, what it is he requires of mankind. If we are to be righteous, holy, here's what he expects. Here are the demands. You be this. You do not be, you know, you don't do this, do that. These are laws. These are commands. 
So the law of God informs us of what God expects and what he requires of humanity, but the law does not provide us with any power to actually obtain it. Just knowing it does not actually help us do it. Uh, this is clear uh, in place like Romans 8, verse 7. It is very clear there. Paul is, 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 uh, tells us that we cannot, if we are in our sins, if we are unbelievers, we are fallen, sinful people, we're looking for an eternal life, looking for salvation. And Paul makes it clear in Romans 8, 7 that we, we cannot keep God's law as sinful people. We cannot live up to it. And so it tells us what's required, but we don't have the power as fallen sinners to do it. So theoretically, uh, if any person could live up to the law, could keep it perfectly and had done so from the time they were born until the time they died, then they would possess a righteousness of their own in themselves that would justify them before God, that would leave them in right standing before God. But again, the problem is that we are all descendants of Adam, and in him we are all fallen. And so no human being can do this. And so this is why Paul tells us in Galatians and also Romans 3.20, that by works of the law, no human being will be justified before or in his sight before God. No human being will be justified by works of the law, by doing good things, because we cannot, we can't, it, you know, any amount of good we try to do cannot overcome our sin. We cannot keep the law of God perfectly. And so despite what so many people think, the law is not a pathway to inheriting eternal life. Rather, it is, as Paul says, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. So one part of the law's function then, especially as it's presented to sinners, is to help us see the depth of our sinfulness, to help us understand the righteousness of God. This is God's law. This is showing us His glory, what He expects. And by contrast, it reveals to us how woefully short of His glory we fall. If we measure ourselves to God's standards, we will come to this conclusion. Therefore, the law of God then reveals our sin to us, and it teaches us that we need mercy. It teaches us that we need grace from God, that we don't have a righteousness of our own, that we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. And so the question that's put to Jesus here in verse 18 is what must I, notice, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's not simply asking what is the correct response here. He's wanting to know what it is I can do to inherit that. What thing must I do? Uh, Matthew's gospel, when Matthew tells us the same account, he makes this even more explicit. There it says that the man asked, what good deed must I do? to inherit eternal life. So he wants to know what works must I do to make sure I have eternal life. He, he thinks there's something he can do to attain this. And so the man in, in our story here in, in verse 18, 
this ruler, who was probably, most think, a member of the Sanhedrin, perhaps a synagogue ruler. It's not explicitly clear. Uh, he does not appear to be uh, dishonest, or he's not coming to test Jesus, it wouldn't appear, as, as we see other places. But this man is severely mistaken. He's severely mistaken. He's overly self-confident. He does not understand just how sinful he is. He does not fully understand the holiness of God. He has this legalistic mindset that there are works he can do that will then guarantee he would be uh, inheriting life. And so I think this will help us understand what Jesus is doing in his response here. And so it begins... In verse 19, he begins the response by asking the man why, why he calls Jesus good. And the reason for that, he says, no one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not denying his divinity here. Uh, there are some disagreements and debate about what exactly Jesus is doing here as he makes this comment. But I would suggest that he's simply questioning this man's use of the term good. This man clearly has a lowered understanding of what is, is good. It's evidenced, again, in the fact that he thinks he can do something good that's good enough to get his way into heaven, to get his way into eternal life. And so he's not understanding the standard of God highly, high enough. He's lowered this understanding of good. Jesus is reminding him that God alone is good. He's using this word in a careless way, and it reflects a careless understanding of righteousness, of what is truly good. And so Jesus is reminding him here of the true standard of goodness, namely God himself. This is the measure that this man needs. And so Jesus begins with asking that question, and he rolls straight into pointing him to the Ten Commandments, the law. And he lists out here five of them. He says, you know the commandments. So look, if you want to do works, you want to try to get to heaven, uh, you know the commandments. You know what God has said is righteous and good. Uh, you're aware of this. This is not a secret. You know the commandments. And then he goes in to list uh, five of them. He lists uh, numbers five through nine, not in order, uh, but he lists five of them. Do not commit adultery, he says. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and honor your father and mother. Again, this might seem to us like an odd response. If, the, if no one is justified by works of the law, why is Jesus showing him the law? But again, if we understand that Jesus is dealing with someone who thinks he can do enough things to work his way to God, that he can possess a righteousness within himself, a man who does not grasp his sinfulness before God, who does not see his need for mercy as the tax collector from the previous parable, then it is not a surprise that Jesus would take him to the commands in order that this, might, this man might measure himself up against God's law. That this man might gain a knowledge of his sin. That he might call out to God for mercy. How is he possibly going to ask and, and call out to God for mercy if he thinks he can be good enough by just doing some things? He won't. And so Jesus is taking him to the law. He needs to understand his sinfulness. He needs to understand the true, what true goodness is. 
So look, he wants to do something to inherit eternal life. Here is the law. This is not the only place Jesus does this. Uh, He does this back in chapter 10. We saw this uh, when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, The parable of the Good Samaritan, you probably at some point in your life have heard it just told to you as an ethical lesson that we should go then do loving things to neighbors. And that's part of it, but that's not the main lesson in that parable, if you'll remember. Again, what happened there is a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test and then asked him the same question we have in our text, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's testing Jesus. It's not a sincere and honest question. So Jesus comes back with law. You know, what, is the, what, are the, what does the law say? The guy gives his answer and Jesus says, right, do this and live. Right? You want to do something? That's what you do. Do those things. Do them perfectly. You'll live. The man seems to understand the weight of what has just been said. And Luke tells us, again, Luke helps us interpret what's going on. And he tells us that this man, in chapter 10, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he, he hears what Jesus says. He understands the depth of the law, and he wants to justify himself. Well, and who is my neighbor? This understanding, my neighbor is, you know, these, these good Jewish people around me who believe and do just as I do. You know, these are the people that I am to love. Other people, you know, who are scum, tax collectors, and so on, Samaritans. These people I'm permitted to hate and have disgust for. Uh, so, you know, who is my neighbor? Just confirm to me here who I need to actually love. And then Jesus, of course, tells this parable of the Good Samaritan, showing that he's to show this, I mean, Uh, intense, extremely amazing type of love to even his enemy, someone that no doubt he did in fact hate. And Jesus again concludes, go and do likewise. You'd like to do what is good. You want to do what has to, you have to do to inherit eternal life. Be like this Samaritan. And of course that should devastate this man's desire to do enough good to inherit eternal life. But you have to love everybody like that and love perfectly like that. This should, man should have realized that he cannot justify himself before God. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus is doing right here. He gives this man the law. Now, it might be, I don't know if you find this surprising or not, but the guy responds by saying that he's done all these things from his youth. On one hand, we'd think he'd, he'd realize you know, he should realize he falls short of God's standard by comparing himself to the law, but he actually says he's done these things. No problem. I've done this since my youth. On one hand, it's a little surprising. On the other hand, it's not surprising because this happens all the time. Everywhere we turn, people are good. Uh, People claim they've kept these commands and many, many others as well. Man in general is very quick to declare our own goodness. And this man is no different. And I have no doubt that externally, on the surface, he was a lot like the Apostle Paul, who externally measured up to the law. In the eyes of many people, he looked very good. No doubt this man was similar. He was probably, generally speaking, a respectful child, relatively good compared to other people. Now, I think Jesus probably could have pressed him on this claim. He says, I've kept these things since my youth. I think Jesus could have gone to the command to not commit adultery. Probably this guy had not committed the physical act of adultery. 
But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount presses this very command a little deeper, showing us that the law is not just aimed at the external act, but also at our heart, at our minds, at our lusts. And he says, if you've looked at a woman to lust, then you've committed adultery in your heart. He could have gone there with this man and nailed him on that. He could have likewise probably summoned this man's parents and said, he, you know, has he honored you? You know, uh, I'm sure he's been generally good, but every time you asked him to do something, did he go joyfully with the desire to honor you in all things? He could have probably pressed on these things, but he doesn't. I don't think we should interpret that to be Jesus is confirming or agrees that this man really had kept God's law. He doesn't challenge the claim directly, but I would suggest knowing who he's dealing with here, he instead exposes this man's sinfulness and lawlessness in another way. So he says in verse 22, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus now summons this man to to sell all of his stuff, give it to the poor and then to follow after him. Now, this command to, to, to sell everything, give it all to the poor, uh, this is not a command that we find in the law, in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, nor is this command to sell everything and give it to the poor a universal command given to every believer or every potential believer, everyone who would, would enter the kingdom of God. But here, Jesus knows this man. And this command is given to him for the purpose of unearthing what he truly worships. That's the effect it has. So we're we're told in verse 23, but when he heard these things, when this man, this rich ruler heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He's extremely rich. Luke doesn't say this part, but Matthew tells us that he went away sorrowful. So he's sad, he's sorrowful, and he walks away. It's a really sad ending to this account. He leaves, he's sad, and he just walks away. But what Jesus has revealed by calling him to to discipleship, by telling him to renounce these things, sell his goods and give the money away and come follow after him, he's revealed that this man has, in fact, broken the law and done so in an egregious fashion. Jesus exposes the fact that this man actually worships a different God. He claims to worship the God of Israel, the Lord, but in fact, he worships a different God, namely his wealth. If you remember back in chapter 16, Jesus warned us about loving money, He warned us about wealth. And there he referred to it as mammon. This was a a word that was brought into Greek by, uh, it was an Aramaic word, and it was used to speak of wealth. And it was sometimes used as a way of um, personifying wealth because of the way that people often end up worshiping it and serving it as though it is a god. And that's precisely what this man is doing. As a matter of fact, he claims to have kept these, the five commands that Jesus has listed. But in fact, he did have 
another God before the Lord. He did worship an idol. He did take the name of the Lord in vain. He claimed to be a worshiper of the Lord, but in fact, that was vanity. And clearly, he was a covetous man. And so again, his refusal to rid himself of his wealth, to be a disciple of Christ and to worship the living God, revealed that he was indeed a lawbreaker. This was not a good man. He had not, in fact, kept the Ten Commandments. He therefore did not possess righteousness and could not inherit eternal life. And so in one just fell swoop, Jesus just brilliantly exposes this man for who and what he truly is. Jesus has told him, forsake the God that you currently worship and, and, and give away that stuff and follow me. And the man becomes sad and he won't do it. And he walks away, he leaves. We might be tempted, I don't know, to... Uh, turn our nose up at this man and think, what a, you know, that's such a silly bargain. But the fact is, none of us, none of us are righteous. The fact is, none of us can earn eternal life. None of us can do enough good deeds to enter the kingdom of God or to be saved. We can't bribe God to avoid his judgment for our sins. So may we be reminded here that God alone is good. May we be convinced of this. Uh, not, not so that we would just continually uh, be under a constant depression because of our sin. The, the reason that Jesus is doing this, again, is that this man might see his sinfulness and call out to God for mercy. This is why we, we preach this. This is why we remind ourselves of this, this tendency towards pride, towards exalting of ourselves, towards thinking we have a righteousness in ourselves. After all, we are better than this person and that person and however else we tend to think of it. But this reminds us that God alone is good. So if you are seeking to be right with God by your obedience, if you're placing any, any hope in your own works, would you see here the bankruptcy of that? That God alone is good and we do not measure up. The law of God exposes the fact that we have not loved God with all our hearts, nor have we loved our fellow man with all of our hearts. And so our hope does not and cannot rest in the law of God. Though the law of God is good, It tells us what is good and what is right. It tells us of the righteousness of God, but it is not a means of salvation. Just one other thing in terms of application here. Um, I would just add that we need to, to make sure we continue to preach the law of God to the world around us. As we do evangelism, whether we are preaching, whether we're in conversation, whether we're typing it out to people we're interacting with. As we encounter self-righteousness, we need to remind people of God's standard. We need to point people to his goodness, help people see that they fall short of it. 
Again, this is not the only time Jesus did this. We see this principle throughout scriptures. The idea of giving the law to the proud and then grace is for the humble, right? Trying to break down the proud, self-righteous person by, by holding up the law of God. We, our world around us throws around this word good so flippantly. Uh, just as this man, but he, probably far worse than the man in our story. Uh, what is evil is called good. What is good is called evil. And, and we, such as we are, in the opportunities we have, need to continue to put before other people God's standard, God's righteousness. An example, I know some of you, a few of you in uh, different settings, even in the past week or two, have had encounters with people on this topic of abortion. And uh, because of some of the things that are happening in the States, this, is, this conversation is coming up perhaps a little more even in our circles in Canada, which is a good thing. And the fact is, the reality is, it's good, it is good when, when you tell people that what they're promoting and advocating is murder, which is what it is. That's... The, they need to be, they need to know this is not just a matter of choice. They need to understand that before God, this is a wicked, wicked evil. And that they are under the wrath of God for their promotion of it or their flippancy toward it. I would never do it, but I just think people should. You know, that's, that's not righteous. It's truly evil. We live in a wicked, wicked time. And again, as we say these things, people are going to despise you for saying it. But our hope would be that that might lodge in their conscience and they might think about the fact that they are under God's judgment for the wickedness in their heart, that they would one day appeal to God for mercy, that they would understand they aren't good. And so the hope as we do this is not just to nail people over the head with the Bible and, and just we can feel better about ourselves. It's not the purpose, but we do need to preach the law to people. And then, of course, of course, come in behind that with the gospel, with the fact that God has made a way for wicked sinners like them and like me and like all of us to be saved, to be forgiven. And so, some people we know are not going to like it. They're going to rail against you. They will despise you for it. And I would just encourage you to, to not lose heart in that and to continue with it. Again, our hope would be that people would, that as we uphold the law of God, that people would see and feel their sinfulness so that they would be saved. And if we just pretend it's not a big deal, and, and that's what so many people are doing, even professing Christian people, kind of winking at it. I've seen multiple people who are Christians, claim to be Christians, online this week, basically presenting arguments that would lessen the law of God and put question into our minds about whether or not abortion is really bad. So maybe not do that. How, would it, how is anyone going to realize their need for saving if we don't keep proclaiming the law of God before people? 
Again, they'll accuse you of anger. They'll accuse you of arrogance. But this, our Lord did this. And even in this case, this man, as Matthew tells us, walked away, sad, upset. So the law is important, but it is not our hope of eternal life. The second place our hope of salvation does not lie So our hope of eternal life is not found in, nor is it aided by, riches. That might seem obvious, but I'm not sure it always is. Let's look at verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? So there was an assumption, uh, which the disciples evidently shared. So it says there in verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Again, Matthew tells us this was the disciples. So they hear what Jesus is saying. Uh, they, they, they had this assumption, many did, that wealth, to possess wealth, this was a clear sign of God's favor upon a person. Rich people are very clearly in God's good graces. How would I know that? Well, look what they have, right? God has bestowed these blessings upon this person. Uh, clearly, he thinks highly of them. He likes them. Whereas the person who is ill or has not, clearly under the curse of God. Uh, this was the same mistake that Job's friends made. It's very common. Uh, that this idea that external circumstances are necessarily a sign of one's righteousness or one's lack of righteousness. And I think this, this still happens today and sometimes can be implicit. But Jesus actually tells us here that wealth is a hindrance. He says how difficult, how difficult for such people to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to make it, I think, even harsher and clearer when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, what he's saying is it's impossible. That's what he's saying. An eye, the eye of a needle is tiny, a camel, not tiny. Uh, it's easier for that big animal to go through this tiny hole than a rich person. To keep, well, the animal can't do that. He's saying it's impossible. I think that's why they respond. Well, then who can be saved? And again, Jesus himself is going to use the word impossible in verse 27. You may have heard um, this understood to be that the eye of the needle was a a gate in Jerusalem, in the wall of Jerusalem that was small. And so uh, camels had to get on their knees and really struggle to get through it. um, But there's no evidence that there was ever a gate by that title. It's what it sounds like. Jesus is saying, it's easier for an actual camel to go through the eye of an actual needle. So this is speaking of impossibility. Again, many religious people, especially today, will still have this view of things, that the pleasant circumstances are a sign of God's favor. I must be right with God because he has given me so much. Things are so good for me right now. I think, you know, I don't need to listen to what you have to say. I think things are clearly right. Even people who aren't maybe overtly religious, but they maybe, you know, if God exists, clearly I'm doing all right. Look at what I have. 
But Jesus says how difficult it is. It's difficult. It's a hindrance, actually, he says. Well, why is that the case? I mean, we would affirm that it's good for people to have what they need, right? Uh, wealth in and of itself is not a wicked thing. Um, that's the very reason we would say give to the poor, why that's a good thing, because we want them to have enough. So some measure of you know, having wealth is, is good. But why does Jesus speak of this as a hindrance? Well, there's a sinful tendency towards self-reliance when we're rich. Uh, sinful tendency to have an inordinate love for the things that our money can buy us and afford us. The fact is our affections are easily swayed. And if we can just purchase whatever we want, then we can constantly be giving ourselves new things that are amusing to us. We get bored of one thing, but it's okay because we have money to just buy something else. And so as wealthy people, it's easy to, to then not see our need for help, to not think about future judgment. Everything's fine in my world. My heart basically gets what I want. You know, I don't see what all this doomsday talk is, it, is about. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any lack. The idea of judgment just seems so far away and unrealistic. Riches, wealth, often uh, promise us, Again, this is our sinful hearts distorting things. Uh, promises us life and happiness and ease. But the scriptures remind us, Paul tells Timothy to exhort the rich in Ephesus to not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. At the end of the day, the fact is, uh, wealth is a lousy God. It cannot give us what we need. It does not bring us closer to God. Back in chapter 12, if you'll remember, Luke warned us, or Jesus warned us of a rich Fool, this man who had lots, built new and greater barns to store all of his grain. He's very excited about it. He tells himself he can relax and be merry. Life is good from here on out. And then the voice from heaven comes to him and it says, he says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And then whose things will these be? At the end of the day, riches can't provide eternal life. They cannot provide salvation. They would seem to provide us with the good life. And this is what we are told. This is what is preached in our world as it has been throughout the history of man. Riches will give us the life we want. It'll give us all we need. But in the end, these wealths can actually be hindrances to entering the kingdom of God, providing a unique temptation that sinful hearts seize upon, taking good gifts from God, and turning them into idols. So again, it is good to be well supplied, but at the end of the day, riches cannot save, and they do not bring us closer to God. Material possessions, material goods, wealth, is not a sign that you or anyone else is right with God, nor is the lack of them necessarily a sign that you are not in right standing with God. So I think this teaching should cause us to be on guard about our wealth or about our pursuit of it as we build our businesses and work in this world. It should cause us to be on guard. That, that, that wealth does not become something that would then keep us from discipleship. Uh, in Matthew 13, when Jesus tells us the parable of the sower, he, he, he speaks there of, of the type of person who initially receives the word of God joyfully Things seem to be good. They make a profession of faith. 
But then he tells us the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches snuff out the fruit. And again, back in chapter 16 of Luke, Jesus warned us that we cannot serve two masters, God and wealth. We will love one and hate the other. And clearly in his mind there, he's saying, we will end up loving wealth and we will hate God. And so this text cautions those of us who've been given much, which I think, you know, to some extent, we probably all have living where we do in the world. But especially even those of us compared to others in this part of the world who've been given very much, it's a caution, but also to those of us who maybe don't have a lot, it's also a caution to be careful what it is we wish for. Commenting on this, John Calvin says, this doctrine is highly useful to all, to the rich that being warned of their danger, they may be on their guard and to the poor that satisfied with their lot, they may not so eagerly desire what would bring more damage than gain. So our hope of eternal life is not in the law. It's clearly not in riches. Where is it found? Well, finally here, our hope of eternal life is found in God. It's found in the saving power of God alone. So look at verse 26 again. The question they're raised by these people who are listening to Jesus speak of the impossibility of a rich person entering the kingdom. And their conclusion is, who can be saved? Right? Again, the concern for them is if those who have this great benefit of wealth, who appear to be so blessed by God, if these things have come to them from God, then if, if, if they can't enter, then who in the world can? Which of us stands a chance at this? And again, while they misunderstand perhaps the fact that riches aren't an automatic sign that one is right with God, of that they have divine favor in that sense, their question is still appropriate. Who has a chance at this? Here's a wealthy ruler of the people. Again, possibly a member of the Sanhedrin, a leader in Israel, outwardly at least, a uh, a law abider, it would seem, certainly on the surface, a very, what would seem to be a good man, good citizen, probably better than most people, if he can't enter, and if his righteousness is not enough, then we are all doomed. What chance does any of us have? This is what they're thinking. And again, they have some misunderstanding, but their question is still appropriate. It's still a good one. They are starting to despair of things which is what should happen. They should despair of their own efforts to try to enter the kingdom of God. Again, if it is true that rich people can't enter the kingdom of God, people who had great advantages, who look really good outwardly, what chance do we have? Well, Jesus responds in verse 27. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So again, it is true that wealthy folks cannot enter the kingdom, even with so many advantages, with the ease of living they have that can afford them time to study the things of God, to look into these matters, to focus on the things of God. Even such people fall short. They cannot obtain eternal life by their working. 
With man, this is impossible. But not so with God. With him, it is possible. John Gill says this. It's a longer quote, but I think it's worth it. He says, For as God could, by his almighty power, if he would, reduce a camel to so small a size as to be able to go through the eye of a needle, which with man is an impossible thing, so by the mighty power of his grace he can work upon a rich man's heart in such a manner as to take off his affections from his worldly substance and cause him to drop his trust and confidence in it. He can change his heart and cause the desires of his soul to be after true riches of grace and glory and bring him to see his own spiritual poverty, his need of Christ and salvation by him, and to deny himself, take up the cross and follow him by submitting to his most despised ordinances and by suffering the loss of all things for his sake. And he can carry him through a thousand snares safely to his kingdom and glory, which is Christ's sense, though the thing is impossible upon the foot of human nature and strength, which can never affect this kind of thing. The point is this, man cannot save himself. Only by the powerful working of God will any man or woman be saved. And while he's talking here of rich people, This is true for all people. This, again, this ruler of the Jews, blessed with so much wealth, and in the minds of men, the closest person on earth to God, he could only, this man, so outwardly clean, could only be saved by the powerful working of God. It was impossible otherwise for him to enter the kingdom. And if it's true then, for the cleanest, most upstanding person there is, how much more is this true for everybody else and the dirtiest of us? And this is where gospel comes in. We cannot do it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do enough good things. We cannot. But God can and does save sinners. And he has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Of course, in this text, Jesus does not say everything Uh, that there is to say about how this works, how salvation works. He doesn't mention that salvation is received by faith and by repentance, although repentance is implied throughout this. I think faith is as well. Uh, But Luke is, you know, in the whole book of Luke, we've seen faith, we've seen repentance over and over. We're going to see both those things as we get to the blind beggar and to Zacchaeus. We'll see both of those things in action, faith and repentance. We'll see next week Jesus talking about his own Uh, work that he's going to do in Jerusalem on the cross and that this is the means by which God would save his people. But here, the emphasis is on the necessity of God being the one to save sinners. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How has this happened, Paul? He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Salvation is of the Lord. Elsewhere, the Lord tells us in his word, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, dead, hopeless. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is impossible with man is possible with God. God can and does save people. Salvation is not a mere decision of the brain. It involves that, but it is much more than that. Salvation comes to a man or to a woman when the Spirit of God works within them and causes them to be born again, as Peter says. And as Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John 3, that is what a Christian is. Somebody who's been made new within, as we just read from 2 Corinthians, a new creation by the Spirit of God, by the powerful working of God, something we cannot do. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So may we throw aside any and all self-righteousness and entrust ourselves wholly to the power and the mercy of God to save us. Let us confess our sinfulness before our God and enter in by grace through faith, by looking to Christ, by saying, I have nothing. I, am, I, I need mercy from God and coming empty-handed. None of my works are of any merit before you. They are, as Isaiah tells us, filthy rags. The very best I can do is filthy rag. It's all stained. Even when I do something that is good outwardly, if it's done by someone who is an unbeliever, it's marred. It's marred by not being done in faith. And so all of us must enter the kingdom by casting ourselves on the mercy of God, trusting that God can save us as we cannot. And so may this be our rejoicing, our hope. Uh, and may we uh, be glad in this today. Uh, if you are trusting Christ, be reminded here that your salvation is of God, that while you can't, do you feel your weakness week after week, day, year after year, as you continue to live your life as a Christian and you continue to battle and you're fighting with your own sin and wrestling with it and you feel the pressure of the world weighing in upon you and the pressure to capitulate and to give in to what the world's saying. Be reminded here that salvation is of God. Remind yourself again, cast yourself again on the work of God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And let this continue also to encourage us that as we look out to our world and things look so hopeless, filled with antagonistic people, and it all seems so impossible. Christ reminds us, yes, with man it is impossible. If it's up to you to save those people, it will be impossible. If it was up to them to save themselves and to come out of this darkness, it would be impossible. But not so with God. And so let us continue to proclaim God's law and proclaim Christ, proclaim the gospel, that while we fall short of God's glory, God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to him 
through the death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise stands that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. We were going to cover right through the end of verse 30, but we will save those um, for next week. The rich ruler wanted to know what he might do to inherit eternal life. In short, there was nothing he could do. The law showed him what was required, but then also exposed him for falling short. And so it is with anyone who tries to earn their way to God. We need God to do something. And salvation is, in fact, the gift of God. It is something that only he can work in a person. And this is good. This is good news. And he does this, as Paul reminds us, by the preaching of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. So may all of this cause us to see the infinite value of trusting and following Christ. And we'll see some more of that next week as Peter says they've left things for Christ. May God be pleased to magnify the greatness of his power, the greatness of his grace, the greatness of his mercy, and the greatness of his salvation in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We give you thanks that while we are powerless and weak and unable to help ourselves in an eternal way, we thank you that you, God, save sinners. Father, that is our hope. That is our hope of entering the kingdom. That is our hope of staying in the kingdom. Father, I pray that you'd encourage us with this, that you'd strengthen us to not lose hope, to continue to press forward that we would see that following Christ is worth anything we might suffer for doing so. Father, give us confidence that this is indeed your word and that the gospel is indeed your message to fallen humanity. Father, encourage us and strengthen our hearts. We pray that you would yet illuminate many hearts in this town around this country as, as we do our best such that it is to take this message to other people. Lord, give us strength to, to stand. And even as we preach the law and we preach Christ as the only way to you, and as we are misunderstood and our motives are maligned and we are told we are wicked, I pray that you would encourage your people to stand. You'd encourage us to search our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us, to confess that, to rest in Christ, and to continue to go forth. Father, I pray that every person here, young and old, would forsake their own righteousness and rest solely in the righteousness of Christ. So we praise you and thank you and declare that salvation is in fact that which belongs to you. We pray all this together in the name of Jesus. Amen.